I don't know about you, but every Christmas I experience a kind of whiplash going into January. You know, all the wonder and joy and peace on earth, goodwill toward men, all the cheery and bright stuff. And then all of a sudden January hits and the bills come due and reality sets in, right? And Christmas can kind of feel like a little bit of a feel-good season uh, that's sort of disconnected from reality, the troubles of real life, um, sort of a mass-marketed departure from reality, you know? Good vibes only, holiday cheer, pretend everything's good, it's okay, even though we know it's not. And so Christmas can feel so commercialized, so pretend, so filtered. But you know what? You can't say that about the very first Christmas. You can't say that about the first Christmas. Today we're going to look at a, a story, a very raw story from the early days of Jesus' infancy. And I promise you, there's nothing commercialized or pretend or filtered about these events. Jesus was born not into a pretend world of Christmas cheer, but into a rough and hostile and broken world, a world like ours. He's a real savior for real troubles in a real world, you see. And so grab your Bibles. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter two, verses 13 down to 23. You'll find today's reading on uh, page 808 in the Pew Bible there, if you wanna grab it, 808. And just to get our bearings, uh, to remember where we are, the Magi have been following the star. Uh, They came to worship Jesus. Before they came to Bethlehem, though, they stopped in Jerusalem, which is where you would expect a king to be. And they go see King Herod, the royal family. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And Herod was troubled. He summoned all the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he asked them, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem. And then he went privately, Herod did, to the the Magi. And he said, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. And of course, it was a ruse. Herod was a notoriously brutal, ruthless king. He had killed family members, his own son, to protect his reign and rule. And his plan is to hunt down Jesus and eliminate him before he can become a threat. But then God warmed the Magi in a dream of Herod's plot, and so they went back home to their own country by another way. And now Joseph and Mary have to flee in the night to protect the life of their newborn child. And in this story, we're going to see that Jesus is not just the Son of God. He is the refugee. He is the exile. He is the Nazarene. Three very important categories that we understand that Jesus belongs to. The refugee, the exile, the Nazarene. That's our outline for this morning. If you'll bow your heads, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you that Jesus came to the real world, not the pretend one, not the feel-good world, but the real world, ravaged by war, overrun with disease, full of heartbreak. 
And so, Father, as we have a beautiful Christmas morning, we feel the tension of this. We thank you that Jesus has come all the way down to be where we really are. He's the one we need. And we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. So first of all, Jesus the refugee. Jesus the refugee. Verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. I called my son. Pause there for just a minute. Joseph is alerted in this dream to the threat uh, and he obeys at once. Uh, Bethlehem is some five and a half miles south of Jerusalem, and so if Herod is on his way, they don't have a lot of time. So Joseph ups and goes, takes everyone, they flee in the night to Egypt. Now, why Egypt? Well, it's the nearest border to the south, number one. Uh, Secondly, it was home to a significant number of expatriate uh, Jewish people that were settled in Egypt. In Alexandria was the biggest city where, where the expatriate Jews were living. And so it's possible that Joseph may have known some people there. And so God's sending him to a place where he'll he'll have some friends. Um, So off they go fleeing in the night to protect the life of their child. And uh, I don't want us to miss this though, that Jesus began his life on earth as a refugee, as a refugee, displaced, hunted, fleeing for his life, seeking asylum in a foreign land. This was a costly journey. We know Joseph and Mary were exceptionally poor. When they dedicate Jesus at the temple, they offer the the sacrifice that was uh, for the lowest socioeconomic level, two two doves. So they're the poorest of the poor. And a trip like this of 300 some odd miles would have been very costly. And then they have an extended stay. We're not sure how long, but they stay there until Herod dies. And so they have expenses, unforeseen expenses. And I think it's likely that they sold or bartered the gifts that the Magi gave them, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh in order to pay the bills in this time. Those gifts were most likely the, the key to their survival. But Matthew points out that something deeper is going on here. Not, not going down to Egypt is not just about escaping Herod, It's also about fulfilling the scriptures. It's about fulfilling the scriptures. Hosea 11.1, which he quotes here, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you were to go look that up in Hosea, you would find in the original context that the son referred to in this passage is the people of Israel as a whole. They were conceived of as God's son and out of Egypt is referring back to the Exodus. So the time when God called Moses to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land. That's what this passage is about. And Matthew is pointing out there's a parallel here 
There's a parallel. Just as God called his son, the people of Israel, out of Egypt, signifying the coming of the days of freedom and redemption and fulfillment, once again, God is calling his son out of Egypt, signifying the coming of the days of freedom, redemption, and fulfillment. In fact, Bible scholars are quick to point out that there are a number of striking similarities between the story of the Exodus and Moses in particular and the events here pertaining to Jesus. So for example, both Moses and Jesus as infants, uh, were, they were born to deliver their people. They were both hunted down by rulers who were threatened by them. They were both miraculously preserved and delivered by God and they both went on to redeem and liberate the people. It's fascinating, the parallels. So Matthew is telling us that Jesus going down into Egypt is not haphazard. It's a clue to who Jesus is and what he's come to be. In other words, Jesus is the new redeemer of a new exodus. Jesus is a new redeemer of a new exodus. Just as Moses delivered the people from the bondage of slavery, Jesus will deliver them from the bondage of sin. Moses stood eye to eye with Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Jesus will stand eye to eye with Satan and say, let my people go. Moses walks through the deadly sea to the safety of the other side, and Jesus will walk through death itself into resurrection life. And Matthew wants us to see this is a new redeemer who has come to usher in a new exodus of freedom, redemption, and fulfillment for his people. That Jesus is identifying with Israel here, you see this. He walks where they walked. He's recapitulating their story so that he might be a true and greater redeemer of a true and greater exodus. Jesus is the refugee who has come to bring God's people home. You see that? And here's what's amazing for us, for you and me. Jesus knows what it means to be a stranger. Do you realize that? Jesus knows what it means to be a stranger. It's interesting. Jesus wasn't born on easy street. He wasn't, he's not a trust fund kid with a silver spoon in his mouth. No. He's a refugee, forcibly displaced, a minority in a foreign land. And some of you know exactly how that feels. You've told me your stories and how you came here and how you had to flee for your lives. You've lived this story. Isn't it amazingly comforting to know that Jesus knows what it means to be a stranger? He knows and he cares. There's, you see, there's nothing commercialized or pretend or filtered about this first Christmas. Jesus, Jesus is a real savior with, for real troubles in a real world. He's the refugee. Secondly, he is the exile, the exile. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. According to the time that he had been he had ascertained from the wise men, this was fulfilled, 
This, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod, this notoriously brutal king, who had already killed his father-in-law, several of his wives, and his own son to protect his rule. We know that from history. He orders an infanticide in the small town of Bethlehem and the surrounding regions, all males two years and under, just to be safe, because that's more than enough time to cover from the moment the star had appeared. And this is heart-wrenching brutality and horror. And Matthew, again, points out that there's a parallel to the Old Testament, to Jeremiah 31, verse 15. That's what he quotes from here. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Jeremiah, in this passage, is writing about the exile. Uh, in 722 BC, the Assyrians uh, came in and uh, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, wiped out much of the population and deported, hauled off a whole bunch of others, children in particular, into captivity. And Jeremiah, in this passage, is weeping. He's weeping over the children who have been killed and deported. And he takes this poetic idea of Rachel. This is Jacob's wife. So uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his wife. So way back, she's been dead and buried for a long time, but her tomb is in Ramah. And as the exiles are hauled off past Ramah, Jeremiah poetically imagines this mother figure of Rachel weeping over her progeny, the children of Israel who are no more, the ones who are lost forever and those who are exiled to foreign lands. And Matthew sees in this sorrow, in this moment, this brutality of Herod, a kind of neo-exile. All these little lives that are lost, one son who's being carried off to a foreign land, who is going to be hated and hunted and oppressed. And, and, and Jesus, not only did he lose his homeland, for Jewish people who viewed the land as God's provision and, uh, of and presence with his people, to be in exile is not just geographic alienation, it's spiritual alienation as well, because to be far from the temple is to be far from the presence and goodness of God, and it is to be under not blessing but curse. And Matthew wants us to see in all of this, that this is, it's the exile all over again. That's what's going on in mini miniature form. Rachel is once again weeping for her lost children. But amidst all this sadness, there's still hope. It's hard to find, but Matthew's Jewish readers would have known that the very next verse in Jeremiah 31:16 reads this. Stop crying, wipe away your tears for your children will return. Your children will return. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Just as the sorrow of the exile gave rise to hope, this new exile in Jesus will give rise to hope as well. Jesus is a new hope for a new exile. 
Jesus is a new hope for a new exile. Not only did Jesus go down into exile in Egypt and face geographic alienation, friends, Jesus would face the ultimate exile on the cross. When he cried out, what did he cry on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Spiritual alienation. Friends, do you realize Jesus was exiled in a sense for us? that he died in our place and for our sake, that he bore all of our sin and shame and he rose again to make us right with God so that we can come home, sons and daughters forever. Friends, Jesus lost his home and became an exile so that exiles like us could come home in him. Amen? And here's... The takeaway for us, it's so precious. Jesus knows what it means to be oppressed. Jesus knows what it means to be oppressed, to be hated and hunted, persecuted and abandoned, struck down and crucified. He's lived in the real world of broken hearts and broken dreams and broken homes and broken lives and broken bodies. It's comforting, isn't it, to know that Jesus knows what it means to be oppressed. You see, there's nothing commercialized or pretend or filtered about this first Christmas. Jesus is a real savior for real troubles in a real world. He's the refugee, he's the exile, and then finally, he's the Nazarene, the Nazarene. Verse 19 through to the end. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So once again, Joseph is directed by a dream to return to Israel. We find out that Herod has actually died, and Joseph is coming back. He's naturally skittish, right? And he asks around, and it turns out that Archelaus, Herod's son, has already made a mess of things in Judea. And things are much better up in Galilee under Herod's other son, Antipas. And so Joseph heads up north and settles in Nazareth. This is important because Jesus will be known as Jesus of Nazareth. Some might wonder, you'd say, you know, wait, wait a minute, I thought Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem in Judea. That's what the prophecies say. How come he's from Nazareth in Galilee? Well, he was born in Bethlehem in Judea, and he was raised in Nazareth of Galilee, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, notice, unlike the previous two prophecies, there's there's something odd here. There's no quotation marks. Do you see that? There's no quotation marks. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, it never, listen, it never says that Messiah will be called a Nazarene. 
In fact, the word Nazareth isn't even in the Old Testament, and there's no reference to Nazareth in the Old Testament. What? So what's going on? Well, Matthew certainly knew that. He knew his Bible. He knew his Old Testament. That's why he doesn't quote from any passage in particular. But what prophetic fulfillment does Matthew have in mind when he says the prophet said he would be called a Nazarene? Well, in the first century, uh, to be called a Nazarene was not a compliment, okay? Nazareth was a backwoods uh, town up in the sticks. Uh, Nazarites were, uh, or Nazarenes rather, were, um, were considered hillbillies, hicks, rednecks, okay? Bringing this into the modern world. People made fun of Nazarenes. And you can hear it in John chapter 1, verse 46, when Nathaniel says, of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Or when Peter is uh, in his series of denials of Jesus right before his crucifixion, uh, the servant girl comes to him in Matthew 26 and says, weren't you with the Nazarene? And he's like, no, not me. (laughs) See, Nazarenes were despised. They were rejected. Do you see where this is going? The prophets had plenty to say about Messiah being despised and rejected, didn't they? Psalm 22, verse 6, Messiah will be reproached by men, despised by the people. Isaiah 53, famous verses from 2 down to 5, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So Matthew is saying that the Old Testament prophecies, the prophets, they anticipated that Jesus would be called a Nazarene in the sense that he would be despised, that he would be ridiculed, that he would be dismissed and rejected. This, this label, Nazarene, is less about where he would live and it's more about how he would be treated. Here's Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king who has come, but instead of a royal welcome, he gets utter rejection. Instead of a crown of gold, he's given a crown of thorns. Instead of being enthroned, uh, he is nailed to a cross. It's all upside down, you see, and that's the point. Jesus is a new king for a new kingdom. Jesus is a new king for a new kingdom. Jesus is the unexpected king, you see. He doesn't show up all tall, dark, and handsome. He doesn't show up with wealth and power, power and riches and grandeur and privilege. No, he's a new kind of king for a new kind of kingdom, an upside-down king for an upside-down kingdom. This king will lay down his life in love to win the allegiance of his subjects. This is a king who will empty himself. This is a king who comes gentle and lowly. This is a king who will wash 
his disciples' feet. He's a humble king. He comes meek. He comes as a Nazarene, you see. And what's beautiful about this is that Jesus knows what it means to be despised. Jesus knows what it means to be despised. He knows what it's like to be unwanted, to be ridiculed, to be dismissed, rejected, devalued. It's so comforting to know, isn't it, that Jesus knows what it means to be despised. That God the Father did not keep his son Jesus safely insulated from all the pain and agony of this sin-cursed world. No, he sent him into the fire as a refugee, as an exile, as a Nazarene. God sent us an incarnate king, you see, to live where we live, to feel what we feel, to suffer as we suffer. God sent Jesus all the way down. There's nothing commercialized or pretend or filtered about this first Christmas. Jesus is a real savior for real troubles in a real world. Friends, Christmas is about a God who climbs into the darkest, most agonizing brutalities of this sin-cursed world, this Satan-dominated world, this death-oppressed world. He takes it upon himself only to burst forth in resurrection power, indestructible, indomitable, invincible. And that same Jesus looks at us and says, come, come follow me from humiliation to glory, from the cross to resurrection, from death into life. Jesus says, I came all the way down to join you where you are. Now you come all the way up and join me where I am. So Merry Christmas, everybody. The King is come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending us, Jesus, into the darkest, hardest, toughest, most painful parts of this world. Father, we thank you that Jesus gets us, that he understands, that he cares, that we have in Jesus Christ someone who knows what we've been through and who is a redeemer who understands our plight. And so not only is Jesus our savior and our king, but he's a friend. He's a friend we can count on, a friend we can commiserate with, a friend who shares our pain and our woundedness. Thank you that we're never alone. Thank you for Jesus. On this Christmas morning, we thank you for the greatest gift we could ever be given, the gift of your son, who came, born in a manger, died on a cross, rose again, ascended on high, and who will come 
again. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We pray this in his beautiful name. Amen.